Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. News came to us just as to them. They heard did not benefit them because they were not you listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that not, no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of God. Thank you, Colleen. Spring training is what some of you in here live for. You love it. You Phillies fans right now are salivating over Bryce Harper. I'm going to be almost 50 by the time his uh, contract runs out. 13 years, $330 million. That's ridiculous. Be nice to have his tithe here, huh? <laughs> but I, I don't know anyone who does spring training quite like Boston does. The Red Sox celebrate the beginning of spring training every year with a holiday they call Truck Day. Anybody in here ever heard of Truck Day? One person. Wow. Truck Day is when the equipment truck pulls up in front of Fenway Park and it gets loaded with all of the spring training equipment. Then when the loading's done, the truck departs for Fort Myers, Florida, where it will await the arrival of the team. What a compelling holiday, huh? Truck day. And when the team arrives, they will immediately get back to the basics. These professionals, many of them multi-millionaires, have played the sport for decades. They'll lay down their pride and work on perfecting even the most routine of drills. They devote time to remembering how to do even the most basic things. Well, for the next five weeks, we too are going to go back to basics. Because much like those major leaguers, we never outgrow our need to be reminded of the fundamentals. And just so you know, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, after we wrap this up, we'll be back in John for many, many months on end without any breaks. But we're going back to basics by digging into the book of Hebrews. Specifically today, we're going to unpack this idea that Trinity is to be a church that is formed by the Word of God. It's not formed by the wisdom of man. It's not formed by the winds of change. 
It's not formed by progressivism or even by tradition. It's formed by the Word. The book of Hebrews is actually a single sermon that would have been read to a first-century church. So when we read this book together, we should imagine a first-century preacher addressing his church. So let's, let's jump in with that in mind. It was the author of Ecclesiastes who said this. He said, It is good to go into the house of mourning. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The house of mourning. Why would he say that? What could possibly be advantageous about attending a funeral of a loved one or of a friend? In what universe is that good? Why does Solomon say that mourning is sometimes better than feasting? I think the answer lies in three short words that many of us have seen on gravestones that we've encountered. About a week and a half ago, I attended the funeral of a family member I was very close to. And as I walked through the graveyard to the graveside service, I saw gravestone after gravestone after gravestone. And do you know what most of them said? Three short words. Rest in peace. This is the end for which we're all striving, isn't it? Rest. Don't we all just want to rest? Don't you sometimes sit at your desk or walk through the halls of your hospital or clean up that little scraped knee or whatever it is that you do all day long? Don't you do those things while at the same time daydreaming about that night when you'll be putting your feet up and resting at the end of your day? Don't you scheme and plan for restful weekends, holidays, and vacations? Just need a little rest, we say. Teachers and students are counting down the days until spring break. Not sure if parents are. Can't wait for a little R&R, we say. But none of these rests that we chase are ultimately and truly fulfilling. We can know this just from experience because after we finish up with Christmas, we're looking forward to New Year's, right? And after New Year's, then to spring break. And after spring break, then to summer break. And after summer break, then to fall break. And, you know, all the way until it culminates into retirement. It's this never-ending quest for rest. It's what we want. And this is because all of these little rests that we just referred to are just shadows, whispers of a greater rest. Some grand rest that we just crave. We want it so badly. Even if we can't fully articulate what it is that we're wanting, we know we want rest. So is there a rest that won't leave us pining for the next rest? The author of our text today is committed to your enjoyment of just this kind of rest. He really wants it for you. We've already discussed for a moment that we'll be taking a little, talking a little bit about being a word-formed church, a church that's formed by the Word of God. But if we only ever leave that at the macro level, this big idea, it will only ever be the responsibility of the pastors to make it happen. So instead today, let's drop down to the micro level. Let's talk for a moment about what it means to be a word-formed church member or word-formed Christian. My goal for our time together this morning is that we'd all be shaken from our shallow estimations of rest, that we'd experience a depth of rest that's better than sleeping in on a Saturday, and that we'd know where to find this kind of rest. Right off the bat here, I'd like to point out something that's pretty basic to the flow of the argument here in Hebrews 4. Probably many of you know this, but so much of our faith 
is built on symbols and shadows. At the dawn of time, God took his cosmic paintbrush and began to paint pictures of salvation into creation, images that would illustrate the ideas of rest and wholeness and salvation. And he painted these images all over the place. For example, baptism is a picture of us going into the grave and coming out alive, just like Jesus. Communion is a picture of all of us becoming one by eating of the same piece of bread, which itself symbolizes the person, Jesus. We all eat of this one thing, symbolizing our unity. The Passover in the Old Testament with the blood on the doorpost was a whisper of the coming blood of Jesus. The idea of rest for the Israelites was no different. The earthly rest that was promised to them in the promised land was no more than a type or a symbol of ultimate rest. It's like this little arrow pointing in a direction that whispers, you know, this is pretty good. The promised land is pretty good. A land flowing with milk and honey, but there's something better coming. That's what rest in the Old Testament was all about. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, God's rest. We only have two points this morning. Both of them are rooted right in your Bibles in the two main admonitions in the text. Just so you know, number one is way longer than number two. Verse 1 is the first point, let us fear. And if you skip down to verse 11, let us strive. So number one this morning, let us fear missing God's rest and instead believe in his word. Our text this morning starts with a therefore. If you look at verse 1, we've rehearsed this before, but what should we do when we see connective words like this? Therefore is a connective word. Connective words pull two two separate thoughts together and tie them into a singular thought. So if while you're reading God's word, you see a therefore or a for, you should ask yourself this. What therefore is that therefore, therefore? You hear that? Ask yourself, why therefore is that therefore, therefore? And then go answer your own question. By all means possible here, the author wants to make an argument that's compelling to us to believe him. He's got two tools in his kit to do that this morning, and he's going to use those tools to make his argument very strong. The first one is emotion. The second one is logic. By the way, this is why Miriam, my wife, can whoop me in any debate, because she's more emotional and she's more logical than me. It's a terrible setup for me. I'm at her mercy. Please pray for me. But follow, follow the sermonic argument here, and you'll find one of his arguments tugging at your emotions and another argument tugging at your logic. His emotional argument is designed to fuel your FOMO. Who in here knows what FOMO is? You heard of FOMO? It's an acronym. Acronym? It stands for Fear of Missing Out, F-O-M-O. The first argument here is designed to fuel your fear of missing out. You heard this right, and here's what I mean. So what is the therefore in verse 1 tying together? Well, the author is pointing us back to the previous chapter, 3, where he describes an account in the Old Testament in which the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness trying to get to the land that God promised them. It's appropriately, appropriately named the promised land. But many did not make it into that restful place because of their unbelief. You can see that there in verse 19 of chapter 3. So the author here is fueling our fear 
by doing what the Eagles probably did last year during the weeks before the Super Bowl. They put the tape in of the previous week's game of the AFC Championship between the Patriots and the Jaguars. They saw what the Jaguars did. They noticed that the Jaguars lost. And then Coach Peterson said, if we do what they did, we're going to lose. So let's not do that. It's as simple as that. The fear of losing kept them from making the same mistakes that that other team did, the Jaguars. So the author here in Hebrews wants us to take note of what the Israelites did wrong and strive not to make the same kind of mistake. Trinity, let's not repeat the Israelites' unbelief. Let's not miss out on God's rest. So for a moment here, I'd like, to, like us to take a, a quick view on the, the quality of their unbelief. It wasn't uneducated unbelief. It was educated unbelief. Do you see it there in verse 2? The message that they heard, in other words, none of them could claim ignorance here. The message they heard did not benefit them because their hearing wasn't hitched to faith. So it is not enough for us to simply hear God's message of rest this morning. It must be acted on. Christianity is not just a stagnant message that sits in the ether for us to observe. It requires faith action on our part. It's like that smell that wafts through your home when there are freshly baked chocolate chip cookies on the counter. That is a message of hope. That is a message of joy. That's a message of pure, unadulterated joy and peace. It is good news in smell form. And yet that aromatic gospel will be of no benefit to you unless you reach out and take that good news and put it into your mouth. Exercising faith is like that moment when the aromatic good news of the cookie becomes effectual as you place it into your mouth and place that sweetness and sustenance into your body. Without that movement of ingestion, that aromatic good news is of no benefit to you at all. It's not sustenance until you eat it. God's good news is not good for you until you pair it with faith. The good news of God's rest can only be yours if you hitch his good news with faith of your own. Have you ever done that? Have you ever sunk all of your hopes and all of your desires for ultimate rest in something or someone other than yourself? Well, while these Old Testament people didn't make it into God's resting place, there's still hope for us to enter that rest there in verse 3. Well, how? Well, if disbelief disallowed entrance into the promised land for them, then it follows that belief would have allowed for their entrance into the promised land. Through belief, we too can enter God's rest, even if they didn't. But here's the thing, and here's the crux of the emotional argument that this author is making. Here's the crux of the emotion that he wants to levy at us. There is a real danger of us missing God's rest. There is a real danger of you missing out on God's rest. And when you think rest, remember, don't let your mind wander off to small, limp, lifeless, mediocre kinds of rest. God's rest crushes cruise ships, all right? 
it relegates American retirement to beans. The rest we're talking about today is real, real soul rest, a place for your soul to call home. Jesus wants us to fear something this morning. He wants you to be afraid. That's the whole point the preacher is making here. You see it right there in the middle of verse 1. Three words, let us fear. Miriam tells me that when she was a small child, she would refuse to go to bed or go to sleep for fear of missing out on something fun that her older sisters or parents would do. She only had sisters, no brothers. Go figure. I only have daughters and no sons. It's her fault and not mine. So, so little Miriam would do this number to, to stay awake, right? You know, you're like spreading your eyes open. Or she would face slap or whatever. She was afraid to miss out on whatever fun was going to be had behind her back. A couple of weeks ago, I was afraid that my family would be missing out on a bright future of our brand new puppy, Charlotte. Or she has become known in our home as Charlick because my youngest daughter cannot say Charlotte. So we all call her Charlick now. Charlick is one of those um, not free kinds of puppies, if you know what I mean. And she was dashing towards Susquehanna Road a few weeks ago and only a few short feet away from speeding cars and semis. And all I could see was dollars and tears floating from the sky in that moment. We fear missing something, losing out on something. And that kind of fear is actually a healthy kind of fear. It reminds us that something significant is, in fact, at stake. And so, for a moment, let's let that fear have its way in our hearts. Something significant is at stake Feel a little bit like Miriam felt on those nights. Let the sinking feeling of potentially missing God's rest weigh on you for just a moment. Only if you miss out on this, you won't be missing out on round round three of the family Uno tournament. No, to miss God's rest is to come under God's wrath. Something significant is at stake. Sometimes we like to remove fear from Christianity. And I understand this instinct. But texts like this are designed to put fear in its rightful place. Fear shouldn't have the last word, but it should have a word in your heart this morning. Jesus wants, if if only for a moment, to fuel fear in all of our hearts. He wants us to experience FOMO. Now, I want to be careful here, because if you're not careful, you're probably going, so are you telling me that ideal Christian living is me always being afraid that I'm on the outside of God's rest looking in. No. No, but there is a healthy place for healthy fear, and that's that's what the preacher is trying to tell us here in Hebrews 4. Back to Charlotte. I should fear when she's streaking towards Susquehanna, but I need not fear when we're playing in the safety of the backyard, the fenced-in backyard even though my backyard is situated just a few feet away from Susquehanna Road. There's always a sense in the back of your mind like Susquehanna is right there with all of its danger, but it shouldn't be overwhelming my thoughts and anxieties. There's a sense in which we can play near a busy street while also being at rest. And this is why it's so critical that we're individually and corporately becoming more and more formed by the Word of God so that we can understand boundaries and the proper place of fear. Fear's rightful place is on the margins. 
Confidence in Christ should have the place at the center of your life. So the idea here is not for us to be preoccupied with fear, but to have our lives informed by the danger to create a healthy fear, a healthy FOMO. So the author wants us to know that there was a generation to whom rest was promised, and they missed it. He doesn't want us to miss it, so beware lest we make the same mistake. Now, we've already mentioned that entrance into this rest hinged on these people's belief or not. Ours does too. I bet some of us in here, we probably say that we believe. I think that's probably an authentic claim. You believe God's promises, but how can you know whether or not that belief in your heart is real? Well, I think, I think the text gives us a diagnostic to understand whether or not it's real. Skip down to verse 6. And the author here equates disbelief to disobedience. He says, they failed to enter because of disobedience. Well, to this point, he's been saying that they weren't able to enter God's promised rest because of their unbelief. But now he says it's because of their disobedience. So which is it? Well, I think it's both. Disobedience is just disbelief walked all the way down the line. Disobedience is just disbelief walked down the line. It's, it's a refusal to live underneath God's rule. So that moment when you click on that image that you know will stoke the fires of lust in your heart, you're not just disobeying God's law, though you are. You're disbelieving that God is who he says he is. You're disbelieving that his goodness is thirst-quenching. Your lying, lusting heart is saying, I need something other than God to fulfill me. Or that moment when you're tempted to tweak a few of the numbers on your timesheet or tax return or invoice if you're self-employed. You're not only disobeying, you're disbelieving. You're disbelieving that God can really take care of you if your check or return isn't what you wish it was. So anytime we're tempted to do something contrary to God, we're really just being tempted to believe something untrue about God. Anytime we're tempted to do something contrary to God, we're really just being tempted to believe something that's untrue about God. We're being tempted to find our rest in something that cannot give it. So how do you fix this problem? Well, if disobedience is just disbelief walked down the line, we fix this not by trying harder and working harder towards raw obedience. Instead, it's by developing a relationship with God, by reading his book, by being formed by the words of this book. We need to nurture that relationship so that when we're faced with temptation, our first response won't just be a gritty, oh, I gotta obey. More than that, instead it'll be, what do I know about my God right now? What is he offering that's better than whatever this temptation is that I'm being seduced by? That's where rest comes from in your day-to-day life. Rest is knowing that your maker is offering you something better. Rest is knowing that your maker gets you better than you get yourself. Rest is knowing that he's always there, no matter how messed up you are. No matter how far you've wandered, how prodigal you've gone, the Father will be there with open arms, ready to throw a party for his wayward son or daughter that comes back. 
That's rest. Realizing you're both fully known and fully accepted. Fully known and fully accepted on the count of another. There's no better place for a soul to call home than that. And so you ought to fear missing out on this kind of rest. It's beautiful. Not only is it beautiful, the alternative is wrath. You can see that in verse 3. So let's, have, let's let fear have its way. But let's look at his logical argument too. His logical argument is designed to persuade your mind. His logical argument is designed to persuade your mind. It's not your or my prerogative to define rest. It's God's. We enter his rest. But in what sense is it his rest? Well, it's his because God is the first and ultimate rester. Here in verses 9 and 10, if you look, the author is lending credibility to his claim that we should enter into this rest because he says our maker rested. This should motivate you to get yours. God himself is proof that this rest exists. And there is a sense in which he's still resting, but it's a ruling rest. Sports analogy number three. We've hit the three major sports. I apologize this morning. But it's kind of like when LeBron takes a seat at the end of a bench toward the end of a hard-fought win. He's resting, but he's still the king. He's LeBron. He's still ruling his team, but he's resting. It's a ruling rest. That's what the author means here when he says that after creation, God rested. He means that his rule was beginning. And so it is for us to enter his rest is to come under his rule. Look there in verse 4. God rested on the seventh day, and he's been resting ever since. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's the end of verse 3. So rest is God's because he rested first. And if God chose to rest, shouldn't we? If he invites us in, if he's the ultimate rester, shouldn't we join him in this rest? So here you have God in creation, literally on the seventh day of the world's existence. And he's already beginning to communicate this idea of rest and wholeness and repair. Ultimately, it's the idea of salvation. God toils and gets after it and creates and creates and creates and then he finally stops and he rests. Isn't this weird though? Think, of, think about this for a moment. This concept is strange. It's a strange deal that God's resting, isn't it? Because he doesn't get tired. By nature, he doesn't get tired. I mean, God's never gotten to the second round of a P90X routine and said, whew, that's it. I'm done. That one did me in. God doesn't get tired. He has never needed to rest. He's communicating something unique, and we ought to pay special attention here. Literally, from day seven, God is saying, there is a rest for you. There is a place where you can come that's safe with the sweet sustenance that only I can provide, where all the weight and toil and hurt of this world can be undone. There is rest for you with me under my rule. God said. It's day seven. Adam's one day old. And God goes, there's rest. But what at its nub is this rest? What is it really? What is it made up of? Well, I hope you felt at least a little bit of a yearning to get into God's rest because it's beautiful and awesome 
and amazing. And because it'll scratch that itch that spring break never could. But I also hope that you've felt a little tension, like what on earth even is this rest? And is, is it even available on earth? Well, I want to answer that question by answering two related questions. First, how does promised land rest differ from God's rest? You know when, you, when those teaser trailers drop for an upcoming Marvel movie or whatever movie series you like the most, people love them. They flock to them. They rack up hundreds of millions of hits within hours. They're interesting. They're compelling. They're good in their own right, but they're not the actual thing. They're just tools to gin up excitement for the real thing. That's kind of like what the promised land was. It was a teaser trailer, not the real thing. Oh, it was good. It was, it was beautiful, but it wasn't it. It was just designed to gen up excitement for the real ultimate thing that God is ultimately offering to each of us. Look at it in verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Your works won't earn you rest at the end of your life. Not the kind of rest that God is offering, at least. Jesus offers the only true entrance into God's rest. He's the only doorway to it. Look specifically back at verses 9 and 10. And I want us to notice the subtle tweak there in verse 9. The word rest, interestingly, becomes a compound word. The author basically takes matters into his own hands here. And he makes up a word on the spot to illustrate the nuance he's getting after. Verse 9, you can look at it. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest. That right there is the word that he made up. Okay, it doesn't exist anywhere else in, in the scriptures. Used only here in the New Testament. There remains a Sabbath rest, compound word, for the people of God. So the Sabbath was another example like of a teaser trailer. It was pointed to something greater than itself. If you don't know what the Sabbath was, it's okay. It was a law that God instituted for his people. It was mandatory and required his people. God required his people to take a 24-hour rest period every single week. Now, maybe that sounds kind of oppressive to you. Like, man, uh, that's crazy that God would force his people to do that. But think about how this would have blessed the Israelites. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. And now, through the Sabbath day, God says, I am giving you seven and a half weeks of mandatory vacation. Hey, slave, you may not work. Hey, slave who has been working 365 days a year, you may not work for seven and a half weeks out of this year. God intended his Sabbath to bless his people. And so here's the point that the author is making with this compound word, Sabbath rest. Here's what the teaser of the Sabbath was pointing to. Externally, it meant ceasing from their ordinary tasks in order to meet with God on that Sabbath day. But internally, it involved ceasing from all of their self-sufficiency to rest in God's grace. You see, we could never earn the favor of our maker through our works. I mean, what could you possibly do? Think about this. What could you possibly do that could impress God? I mean, he's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's stunning. 
Nothing you do could ever sort of meet his standard of glory. And we shouldn't try to earn his favor in this way. We should rest in someone else who has earned the favor for us. Think about how the ancient Israelites may have responded to this Sabbath law. I bet I would have been skeptical of this. I wonder if you'd be the same. I bet some of them would have been a little skeptical. You see, they lived in a primarily, almost exclusively farming culture without the abundance that we experience today in America. So it was kind of like, you don't work, you don't eat. Every single day, if you don't work, you don't eat. But here's God forcing them to quit once a week, even though they needed food. Forcing them to trust him every week during that Sabbath. Forcing them to trust that he would provide for them to live. We as New Testament believers, we're forced into a very similar position. Jesus gives us rest from our doing. That's what verse 10 is all about. The Sabbath, just a whisper, a shadow was coming. Christ, the substance, the real, the real thing is the ultimate fulfillment of a restful Sabbath. So we toil and we strive and we work in these earthly bodies, but there's a day coming when the fulfillment of this will finally be complete. Then we can finally rest perfectly forever in our Christ. Nothing left to do. But there's a sense in which we can enjoy that reality now. Not just waiting for it then, but enjoy it now. And this leads us to this second question, when is this rest available? You can find the answer there in verse 7. He says, again, he appoints a certain day. Today saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So your rest, your ability to enter into this rest is not relegated to the future. It's been available since day seven of creation. And it's available now, today. Today is your day of salvation. To enter Christian salvation is to enter God's rest by coming under his rule, by ceasing from your doing and instead resting on his son's works that he has already done. So let us fear missing God's rest and let us instead believe his word. And second, and very briefly, remember point one is way longer than point two. Don't get nervous. Second today, let us strive to enter God's rest by surrendering to his word. I want to show us how to enter into this rest. We've already acknowledged that to enter God's rest is to enjoy life under God's rule. The author here gives you the pathway to this, to this ruled rest. He gives you the pathway in verses 12 and 13. And the pathway to rest is paved by the words in this book. The pathway to your rest on a Tuesday night at 7.04 p.m. when things are crazy and work is crazy and dinner's not on the table yet, the pathway to your rest is paved with the words of this book. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the word of God. Belief in it. Those Israelites missed the pathway. They didn't believe in this, God's word. So let us not get this twisted this morning, Trinity. The resting life is the striving life. Verse 11, strive to enter his rest. 
striving to become more and more shaped and ruled by these living words of God. This is a dangerous book. It's piercing down to your very core, your soul. And in the end, you're accountable to it. It is not accountable to you. Look at the end of verse 13. You are accountable to this. The resting life is the ruled life. And the ruled life is the word-formed life. Do you want to experience rest in this life and the next? Let God rule your heart. Let him dictate your path. Let his word pierce you and define you. We've saved our big idea for the end this morning, but here it is. If you want to enter God's rest, you must come under God's rule. If you want to enter God's rest, you must come under God's rule. If you're new here, typically we have a big idea and it just like encapsulates what we think the text ultimately is about. One sentence, we try to keep it one sentence that encapsulates the biggest idea here. Now, I'm sure some of us in here today are like, yo, if God would just speak to me, if he would just talk to me audibly, then I'd know what to do. I'd know how to proceed. You want the rest of knowing that he knows. You want the rest of knowing that he's aware and that he actually cares. Well, friends, can I assure you that he does? Can I remind you, as one pastor recently reminded me, that if you want to hear a word from God today, just go read your Bible out loud. If you want to hear a word from God today, read your Bible out loud. Your Bible is the living word of God. Living it, breathing it, surrendering to it, being formed by it, that's how you enter into rest. Let it speak to you and let its truth settle into your soul. Let it draw out your anxious tension and lay it on the shoulders of your Savior on that cross. Let it shout the good news of the gospel to you that you are fully known and fully accepted. Let it woo you into the rest only available at the foot of the cross. Jesus said, those of you who are heavy laden, those of you who are burdened, those of you who feel overwhelmed, come to me and find rest for your soul. Your takeaway today, it's not just to believe something more fully, though it is that. It's not just to believe that God provides eternal rest for all those in Jesus. The takeaway today is to allow that belief, that eternal hope that you have, to permeate into your everyday life. It's to strive to come under the word and to be formed and pierced by it in the face of situations that threaten to steal rest from you. What is your functional savior? Is it a clean, orderly home? When kids have made a mess of your place, does your rest sneak out the back door? When your kids are puking all over the place, does your rest sneak out the back door? Single person, what is, what is rest to you? Would you finally be able to rest if you just found that perfect match for you? Are you just dying to rest in peace with a spouse, with all the joy and security of a committed mate? Maybe you're faced with a bleak medical diagnosis. Are you staring down the barrel of a debilitating anxiety and depression? Are you married to someone that is just sucking the life out of you? College student, is the debt piling up? Are your grades creating a narrative that will be challenging to overcome when you enter the workplace? Is your boss overbearing? 
Are your colleagues whispering about you? Is your soul disturbed by something like this or something else? All of the rest that you seek in those situations, they're just teaser trailers meant to propel you towards God's rest. But when those pursuits become our ultimate pursuits, we get all out of whack. Run after God's rest under God's rule by coming under God's word. Because God's rest is like a ballast that holds you fast in the face of life's waves. I want us to know that no matter what we face, there is a peace that can settle your soul. No matter how dark, how bleak, how endless, don't just sniff the hope of this message. Take hold of it, embrace it, ingest it, be formed by it. Trinity, don't wait for this weekend to rest. Rest now. Become an increasingly word-formed Christian. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're tempted to find rest in all different kinds of places. I pray that you would help us find rest in our Savior, to find rest in our Christ, that we would lay our deadly doing down and embrace the done of our Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.